Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Let's do a couple of announcements before we begin. First of all, next month, I am so excited about speaking uh, at the West Virginia Speech and Hearing Annual State Convention. I'll be there on Friday, April 15th, and I'm teaching Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. I just taught this course in February at the Kentucky State and Hearing Association and had a tremendous turnout and fabulous responses and participation. And I just had so, 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 so much fun because I love those big crowds and get super, super energized and excited about that. So hopefully West Virginia will be a repeat of how much fun it was in Kentucky in February. So that's, again, on Friday, April 15th. And you can find out information about attending that uh, by searching West Virginia Speech and Hearing Association. Uh, second announcement, I'm running $25 off any of my or either of my full-length courses on DVD. And if you're a speech pathologist, you can get ASHA credit for these DVDs by watching these at home, filling out the paperwork just as you would for a live event, and then returning that to us. So it's a fantastic way if you've not been able to attend a course in person and you've been wanting to, you get the same material and you can do it all on your own time without the cost associated with travel or missing your caseload for a day. So I'd highly, highly encourage you to do that while it's on sale. And you can get information about that. Um, if you're on my email list, you've already gotten it. <laughs> if you're not on the email list, you should do that. And you can join that by uh, going to my website, teachmetotalk.com, and clicking in the green banner. And by doing that, you'll you'll enter your email. You'll also get a free copy of my uh, ebook for parents, The Parent's Guide to Understanding Speech Language Development. Fabulous, fabulous resource. I've offered it for a while now, and I always get such positive feedback. And it's something that speech pathologists and other kinds of early intervention therapists use all the time as an education tool for parents. So if you haven't gotten your copy, do that today <laughs> so that you have access to that great information to share with families who are really out there looking for answers and for solutions for uh, what's going on with their own little light talker. So check that out. And, and the course sale, let me just say, it's a coupon code. And I know a lot of you listen to these shows even years and years after their first release. So today is March 18, 2016, <laughs> and that sale will run for the next couple of days. But if, if you're not on my email list and you just want some information about it, you can always shoot me an email uh, to laura, L-A-U-R-A, at teachmetotalk.com, and I'll be happy to give you that coupon code and provide that information for you. Last announcement, and boy, is this a big one. My course is at Autism, uh, Recognizing Red Flags in Toddlers Who uh, Have Suspected uh, Autism. Guide for Therapists, that course is going to be released on DVD super, super soon. So, again, get on my email list so you'll get first notification for that, and you'll also get the pre-sale price for that. That's only going to be offered to folks who are on that email list. It won't be publicly advertised as pre-sale on the website at first. So to get a jump on that and, again, get the very best pricing, you're going to want to be sure that you sign up for that. And keep looking for those announcements because uh, it's a super, super course. I'm so thrilled to get that out. You can always get the ebook version of that now. <laughs> Uh, with Kindle, and to get information about that, go to teachmetotalk.com's homepage and click on that information where I think it says Kindle version or something like that. It's one of the first little posts at teachmetotalk.com. Okay, let's move on to today's show. Today we are continuing my series, 11 Skills Toddlers Use Before Words Emerge, and today we're talking about the third skill. And in, in case you haven't listened to those first, gosh, four or five shows that we've done in this little series, this is actually show number 280. If you haven't listened to shows 275 through 279, I would highly encourage you to do that before you listen to today's show because there is valuable information that I'm not going to repeat today. <laughs> 
But I think it's really, really important that we listen to this show or think about this information in a pretty sequential uh, way, a pretty sequential manner, and here's why. That's how language develops. And again, in, in children, regardless whether a child is typically developing, meaning that words are coming in on time, they're walking on time, everything is just developing as expected, and in children with some problems learning to talk, children with some delays, language delays, or children with, uh, they already have a diagnosis, there's more of a speech disorder going on. So there's some atypical development there. There's not just a lag in time. There's a true difference in how communication skills are developing. All of all children, regardless of the two types, the two broad categories we just talked about, roughly develop speech or language emerges roughly in the same way. So you want to have a firm idea of how that process unfolds. And again, it really doesn't matter whether your child is typically developing or not because the skills that we're talking about in this series, these 11 skills, really, really, really need to be solidly emerging or mastered or meaning if you're a parent and that doesn't make too much sense to you, a kid has to be doing these things before we can realistically expect him or her to begin to talk. And sometimes we do think about language just kind of as a magical process and a kid goes to sleep and is completely nonverbal one night and the next day he wakes up talking in full sentences. It doesn't really happen like that. So by analyzing these 11 skills and looking at, at how, the, how this process develops and thinking about your own child or if you're a therapist, the children that you're serving and the families you're serving right now, you can more accurately analyze and pinpoint exactly what's not happened yet. And remember why we're doing this? Not just so we can kind of point the finger as a blame with this is why or whatever. No, it's so we can make it better. It's so our interventions or the strategies that we use or the ways that we interact with children can improve to build that foundation for speech-language development, to get in there and make a big, big difference. And so, again, sometimes I think things that are on the information on the Internet focuses so much on what's wrong with a child or what's not happening with the kid without going on to say the good news is <laughs> or, you know, the, this this is what we do about it. We don't have to stay stuck. We don't have to stay you know, wringing our hands thinking, oh, this is a problem, this is a problem. No way. We move on, we address it, and we, as I like to say, facilitate or put in place very simple yet effective ways to help a child improve what he or she needs to um, make better so that words can emerge. So today we're talking about a really, really important skill, and it's developing an attention span. Now, sometimes in the past, when I have talked to parents about an attention span, they really don't get the connection with what does that have to do with talking. And let me just give you a really brief explanation here so that if you're wondering that, you're thinking, well, I don't care if he pays attention or not, I just want him to learn how to talk. Let, let's, let's really dig in and think about why an attention span is important. Kids have to be able to pay attention to things of interest around him and, again, and we spent the last show in this series, show number 279, talking a lot about helping a child learn to respond to people. Those skills are really, really critical, and kids have to be able to do this before they possess the ability to learn how to talk. So these are things that, that come first. And again, how does paying attention to things around them or people in the environment relate to learning to communicate? Here's the bottom line. A child needs another person to teach him how to talk. It doesn't really happen by him sitting in a room looking at pictures in a book. Guys, that's visual information. There's no language going on there. Even if he's doing a little app on the iPad or on your phone, or if even if he's watching an educational DVD, kids really need other people and need real 
life events <laughs> in order to make language meaningful. They cannot learn language on their own. So until a kid, let's talk about the attention piece. So let's think about this. When a kid is super, super busy, so until a kid can settle down or calm down, however you want to look at it, until he can stop <laughs> long enough to want to be with you to make himself aware of events in his environment, people in his environment, those things, he's never going to be in an optimal state for making that connection between what he's hearing, so the words that he's hearing you say, and what they mean. So a lot of times when we think about kids who don't have an attention span, we're really looking at kids who are kind of on either end of the broad spectrum of development you know so let's kind of think about this let's think about it like a clock you know an old-fashioned grandfather clock maybe sitting in your grandmother's home <laughs> remember those clocks where there's a pendulum and that's you know the 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 wand the part that hangs down low and swings from side to side and how we used to think about it saying tick-tock, tick-tock, that kind of thing. Okay, it can swing way far, let's just say to the right, all the way to the right, and we're going to use this analogy here and think about children who are super, super, super active and on the go. I think about these as busy kids. Sometimes the parent might say, you know, he's just wild. He just can't settle down. He's just on the go. He just never stops. It doesn't even when he's sitting, he's constantly doing something with his hands or looking around or, you know, I, I unless he's asleep, he is on full throttle all day long. So, let's think about a kid like that. How hard is it for him to be able to Settle enough, settle down enough, calm down enough, uh, stop long enough sometimes for him to be able to really listen to what you're saying. And I see this happen all the time with children that I've worked with or even children like in um, places that you go just in your town. You know, you may see them, you know, their mom lets them out of the buggy at, at a store and boy they take off they're just you know they're gone they're out of there even if they're in the you know in the back of the buggy they can't sit in the front because they're they're just too active for that and they're pulling stuff off the shelves or they're throwing you know as fast as their mom can put the packages in the back of the cart they're tossing them out or even let's say they're in their car seat as you're trying to drive boy they are reaching for everything they are just or or they're they're kicking their little legs they're just moving their little bodies they are always on the go when they're home they're slamming into walls they're running nonstop, just move, 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 move. So those kinds of kids, again, sometimes have a really hard time learning language because those little systems are always revved up, always, always sinking and going, going, going like the Energizer Bunny here, and they don't pause enough to process and give their little brains enough experience with the language that you're trying to teach them to really make firm associations between what you're talking about and and what they're seeing. So again, they really miss out on those opportunities for learning language because they're that's not been their focus and they haven't they haven't found it important enough yet. Or their little bodies, their little sensory systems almost won't let them do that yet. So those are the kids who may have some difficulty learning to talk too. Let's think of it, go back to that analogy that we're using of the grandfather clock where we've swung the pendulum all the way to the right and we've talked about really, really busy kids who are kind of, and again, every kid that's not talking won't be one of these extremes, but a lot of them are or they're close to it and you certainly can relate to these examples, especially if you're a therapist and you've seen lots of children. But even with your own child, if you're a parent listening, your own late talker, that may be one of the things that you say is, gosh, I just can't can't get him to pay attention. No wonder he's not understanding very many words or no wonder he won't talk or every time I try to get him to say something, he runs off before I can even get him to listen to me or try. So we're talking about those kinds of kids, but guys, there's another kind of, the other end of that extreme. So let's think about the grandfather clock swinging all the way back to the other side. If we're kind of looking at activity level here, would be the kids who are, as our occupational therapy friends would say, low arousal, meaning they're pretty flat, meaning that it takes a lot to get them to seem to want 
to zone in or tune in or or engage in what you're talking about. They're kind of seeming to be in their own little world and do their own little things. And so even though they may not look as busy as our little friends who are constantly on the go, we still have some kids who seem, for lack of a better word, you know, as I said, flat or checked out, or like for some reason they just can't connect with what you're trying to say and have what you're trying to teach them. So that's another Again, extreme example, but it's an important one because those kinds of children also have difficulty learning to talk. So again, we think about when we're thinking about activity level as it relates to attention span, we've got to be able to address these issues so we get our little friends in that just right place for learning what words mean. And again, we have to think about teaching them to understand words before we can teach them to talk. Now, some folks kind of get this wrong, and they think about, well, it doesn't really matter if he understands the word, if he can say the word, or I have to get him, I have to teach him to talk before I can teach him how to, what the word really means. In my opinion, that's just backwards. We have to think about receptive language first, or we have to think about helping a child link meaning or understand what those words mean, and then, then, then he'll learn how to talk. And again, I'm not just kind of pulling that explanation out of thin air here. (laughs) That's how typically developing children learn language. They always, if you think about typically developing toddlers, let's say between 12 months, 18 months, 2 years old, when when we're looking at the, the relationship between how many words they understand versus how many words they can say, the words that children understand, and typically, again, when there's nothing going on with development, when everything is proceeding just as we thought that it would, those kids always understand much, much, much more than they can say. So don't let anybody talk you out of that position or talk you out of of saying, oh, it doesn't matter if he really understands it. We're going to teach him how to talk first, and then we'll kind of back up and then worry about what he understands. Guys, it does not happen that way in regular, normal, typical language development. So I want to be be sure that you're understanding that and, and, and recognizing what an important distinction that is. Okay, so again, we're talking about what we can do to help children develop that attention span, develop that ability to tune tune in or focus on what we want them to do. And again, the reason is so that we can help them learn how to understand what words mean and eventually begin to use those words to talk. And so if we don't help a child regulate, and by regulate, again, we could be talking about either one of those extremes. We could help a busy kid calm down or we could help a a kid who's a little disengaged or disconnected rev up. You know, either one of those extremes, they have to get to that just right place, that kind of think about it as a happy medium. They have to be able to be there so that uh, they are at that, that optimal state, that very best possible situation so that they can begin to understand uh, what words mean and make those connections that we're talking about. Okay, and and really here, folks who have an educational background might say things like, you know, we're going to get them ready to be taught or get them ready to learn or ready to listen or whatever. It may that may sound a little more formal then I want parents to generally think about that because sometimes when we say those kinds of things to parents, they think about teaching as having a child, you know, in a classroom setting where he's sitting very obediently and very calmly in a little desk. And as it, for a toddler, you know, it, it, it's a really <laughs> – a lot of times someone's first instinct, you know, when you've got a kid that's just kind of running around doing what he wants to do and he doesn't seem to want to listen or settle down enough to play with you or interact with you, you think, well, gosh, I'm just going to force him to do it. I'm just going to belt him in this high chair here and I'm just going to make him sit down and that's when he's going to do it. And, you know, then parents will just kind of take that analogy, that teaching analogy a step further, and they'll say, well, I'm just going to get a bunch of flashcards here, and I'm just going to show him flashcard after flashcard after flashcard, and I'll just tell him what the word is, and I'm going to expect him to repeat it, and voila, our problems are solved. He's going to learn to talk that way. That's unrealistic, guys. (laughs) 
And from a developmental standpoint, it's completely inappropriate to think that children are going to learn to talk in that way. And, and beyond all that, it's just plain boring. You know, there are some children who really do like that visual information, so they like flashcards. They like reading book after book after book. And if that's your kid, hey, go for it, because he's telling you his learning style will accommodate <laughs> those more formal teaching methods. But for most toddlers, they need to be exposed to language, and we need to change how we address language and how we want to, quote, unquote, teach them to accommodate their own little learning styles and, and what they are showing us every single day that they prefer to do. So again, a really, really busy kid, you're not going to be able to instantaneously change his his little personality here or his his learning style by belting him in. What you're probably going to do is make him really, really, really mad. And then he's not going to learn anything other than, I don't like this lady and I don't like what she's trying to do to me and I'm going to do everything I can to raise holy you-know-what so that she does not force me to sit here and participate with her. I'm going to cry. I'm going to scream. I'm just going to make so much of a ruckus that either she or my mom decide this is not worth it and I'm out of here. And really what they're doing too, you know, we kind of look at that sometimes as a behavioral issue with he's just really, really bad when honestly a lot of times it's just their little sensory systems really don't give them an opportunity to let them settle down. I mean, they, they, they don't know, sometimes don't know, really where their little bodies are in space, so they're constantly running and bumping into and crashing so they can kind of feel where their bodies are, or it could just be that they have to get themselves so revved up like that so that they can pay attention. I mean, there's so many explanations, and without meeting an individual child, you really can't give too much information and rely on it until... You know, we've met a specific child, and until we're looking at that own little con their own little constellation of weaknesses and strengths. So, again, there's so many possibilities as to what could be going on sensory system wise or learning style wise, and you really need a therapist to help you figure that out. If you're a mom and you're really struggling with um, kind of understanding where your kid would fall on this, so. Back to kind of what our strategies are here. There's a lot of scientific evidence that toddlers benefit or really young children, and that would be kids in that one to three or four-year-old range, benefit much more from natural teaching strategies than more structured approaches. And so that's what we're going to be talking about here and how to help a child develop an attention span and the things that we can do really to set the stage so that he is in that optimal state for learning language and so that we do get him to that just right place. And again, we're not talking about having something be super, super formal. You know, I, this is what I always say. We can teach words anytime, anywhere. So we want to give kids plenty of exposure and plenty of opportunities to learn language as we do everything with them, as we play, as we snuggle, as we do even all the mundane things that we have to do in our everyday lives. So as they eat, as they take a bath, as we change their diapers, as they, you know, tag along, as we clean up messes and do all the housework, as they get dressed, as they're riding in the car, as you're walking in the backyard, as you're shopping, you name it, we can teach words anytime, anywhere. And that ability, though, for him to be able to link meaning, like we've already talked about, really does begin with him being able to attend or pay attention to what's happening as you talk to him, as you both share and experience together. So when a kid is really busy or distracted or even kind of on the other end of that, when he's really, really isolated and doesn't seem to notice what you're talking about, a child in that situation really, really misses those opportunities to begin to attach meaning to words. And again, that that's the predecessor for being able to learn to talk. So let's let's begin to kind of talk about how attention spans develop. Now next week we're going to take it a step further and talk about joint attention, but we're not quite there yet. Today we're just talking about basic strategies that we can use or employ that we can begin to incorporate into our everyday routines with children so that they do get to that just right place.
for being able to learn language. Now, again, I alluded to this before, but let me say it before we move on to these strategies. Sometimes parents will say things like, well, listen, Alara, I really don't think there's a problem with his or her attention because, you know, he can watch a movie two times in a row. So for three hours, four hours, he can pretty much stay with that movie. Or they'll say something like, well, this isn't an attention because if it's something she likes, man, she'll stick with it so much that I find it super hard to get her away from it. And that is attention, but it's not the same kind of attention that we're talking about for a child, again, to be able to focus on real-life events with a real-life person, which is how we help them learn language. Again, this show and next week's show, it's going to kind of all be be not lumped together. That's not the right word, but I do want you to think about it as pretty sequential. The things that we're going to talk about today really get a kid settled down or at that just right place as I keep repeating myself. We, we're going to talk about how to get that going today, and then next week we're going to talk about that, that maturation of the attention span even more where a kid does engage or demonstrate joint attention, meaning he can learn to shift his attention between you and between something you're doing. But today we're just going to talk about that basic, that basic place that comes first with helping a kid uh, develop um, an attention span. And let's talk about what's normal for a child. And I think I've, I've talked about this a couple of shows ago when I was introducing and providing an overview of all the skills. A normal toddler attention span, based on the research we have, varies from three minutes until uh, up to about six minutes without adult intervention. So that's kind of when they've looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of children, that seems to be the range there. So meaning that it's normal for a kid to want to move on to a new activity after about five minutes. That's just where they are in the developmental process. So anything beyond that about five-minute range, that three to six minutes, means that an adult will have to help a child or assist them in maintaining attention to that task. So that's, again, kind of what we're looking at here. Sometimes a mom will say, he, you know, my child doesn't have a good attention span, and I'll play with them, and we're using something he really, really likes, and gosh, the kid wants to stay with it longer than I do. And so that's an important part is helping really zone in on what a child's preferences are because that's where we're always going to get the best attention at the beginning. And, again, it's kind of, you know, why would we want to fight that? Why would we want to pull a kid away from what he's interested in knowing what we just said before that we can teach words anytime, anywhere. Now, we may have to be a little bit more creative with it. We may have to think a little bit harder. We may have to plan a little bit more with, okay, you know, he loves these matchbox cars. He only wants to play with his little collection of matchbox cars. I'm not going to get him to be able to move away and play with, you know, baby dolls, and he really doesn't care for this playhouse set that I have, and, you know, I really can't even get him interested in anything much beyond those cars. And at the beginning of when we're really first starting to work with a child, that's what, where I think what we should go with. Now, unless we're at the point with a kid where they're so almost obsessed and they really tune out anything we say because they're so hyper-focused or kind of over-the-top focused on on what they're doing so that they uh, do isolate, as we, you know, I used that word before, so that they're, they're so engrossed in, say, spinning the wheels or, or something that, that looks self-stimulatory, meaning that they do it over and over and over and over and they're getting a kick out of it and they like it, but there's really no way for them to include anybody else or process any other language beyond what their visual attention or let's say maybe maybe they're kind of obsessed with a little sound. Um, you know those little door stopper things that are we sometimes have in, on the backs of doors to keep them from slamming into walls. I've had children that really seem to kind of obsess on that sound. So they want to pull that little stopper, you know, and they hear, it's kind of like a boing. They want to hear that over and over and over and over. Or you might have you might have a similar experience with a child who's, who loves a certain app or a certain game. And so they press that button 
to hear that sound over and 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 it just drives you crazy. But they love that sound and they're kind of caught in that little loop. Okay, that's what I mean by self-stimulatory and perseverative. So sometimes we can't begin with things that kind of have gone there (laughs) that cause a child to do that. But you should start with things that a child really, really likes so that um, that we're not fighting their attention then. We are we are naturally using what they want to do. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week when we're looking at joint attention. Today we're going to take it a step back, though. And I think, listen, let me just say one more thing. We talked about this in last week's or last show, too, show number uh, 279 here where I was giving you really general strategies for helping a child learn to respond to people. And remember what we said about those those tips, those strategies that to get a kid to first start to respond to us, that we would get down on his or her level, that we're going to modify the environment so that we place ourselves where we think the child is most likely to look. Remember we talked a lot about that, how we could move a kid up on a low couch or a table and then we would sit right in front of them because they're going to most likely be able to notice our faces when we're in their line of vision. We talked a lot about giving children reasons to look at us, so making our faces look really fun and our voices really fun to listen to. We talked about the preference piece a lot with with what we've already said here today, with doing what he likes. And we talked about how important it is to really get that interaction going and how we have to be, you know, on guard and super playful to make sure that all of our interactions prioritize that that level of engagement and that we do everything we can to make him want to respond to us. So if you haven't listened to that show, go back and listen to that first so that you can get a good idea because, again, this is really an extension of of those kinds of skills. So last last show is our starting point, and today we're going to move on a little bit beyond that. So what can we do? What are some things that we can do to help a child – begin to really develop an attention span. Well, here's number one. We've talked about the sort of the extremes that we can see with children, children that are just hyperactive almost, just super, super, super on the go. And it's really, really hard for them to settle down and play with us. And we contrasted that with a child who kind of seems checked out or flat, meaning that he doesn't really respond to much of anything. You don't see a variety in his facial expressions. You just kind of can't really tell if he likes something or not because his little expression stays the same for most of the day. So for these kinds of kids, we really need to think about helping that child get warmed up before we begin little play sessions with them. So before we're ready to really think about our teaching time. And again, we talked about teaching time can be anything. It can be a bath. It can be playing in a sandbox. It can be getting um, all the pots and pans, you know, out of the cabinet. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be something that looks, you know, like with a little table and chairs and really, really formal. But it's so important, even before you know, we're thinking, well, I don't have to really get them warmed up because we're going to play. This should, you know, we don't. I don't have to. I don't see why you're telling me to have this little introductory period here. Everything you do with that child will be much more effective if you can set the stage and get him warmed up and get him really ready to learn. And again, we've already talked about for different children, it'll be different things. But let me just give you some hints here. Movement works better than almost anything. And again, it works to get the busy kids calmed down and it works to get the the children who are a little bit disconnected revved up. So move, 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 move. And our friends who are OTs really understand how movement works to get all of us in that optimal state for communicating and for learning. Think about when you go somewhere that you have to sit for a long time and you're not really doing much of anything except listening. And I hate to say church, but that's a good example. Or, you know, think back to when you were in school in a class. What happened when you were in that situation, when you really didn't get to move around very much, when you were expected to kind of sit still? What happened in that situation? Well, if you're like me, man, I get sleepy (laughs) when I stop. And so 
it's funny how we'll notice that even as adults we do things that when we're in those situations that still kind of keep our our bodies or our brains on ready so that we can listen and we can learn. So you may jiggle your leg, you may doodle on a piece of paper, you may shift your weight from side to side, anything so that you can get a little movement. If you really feel like you're going to sleep, you may even get up and go to the restroom or get a drink or stretch your legs or whatever you call it. Because on some subconscious level, you know, I've got to move here or I'm just going to totally, you know, go to sleep or, or, or not pay attention or daydream or, you know, whatever it is you do. So movement works. And even we adults will, you know, if we're sitting in a meeting for work, you know, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves really, really letting our minds wander and a lot of times the things that we do to kind of zap us back to reality, you know, we'll grab a pen and squeeze it and start to write and take some notes because we know, gosh, that makes me pay attention. That makes me stay here in the moment. That makes me participate. And so kids really can't do that yet. They're, they don't have that level of self-awareness to be able to say, man, i got to pep up here. I, I have no idea what she's even trying to say to me because I'm, I'm kind of lost here. You know, kids can't do that. So we have to, or sometimes their bodies do it for them. That's why they'll just seemingly, you know, out of nowhere, just jump up and run away. Because on some level they know, man, i got to get myself going here because this is this is not how I want to feel. I'm feeling too checked out here. i got to go do something else. got to go see something else. So that's why movement, 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 movement really works. Um, and sometimes, again, parents will say, well, that's counterintuitive for a kid who's already busy. You know, I don't want him to move. I want him to settle down. You've got to get the movement piece in first, you know, as a really kind of practical way to say it. You've got to get the wiggles out. So you've got to, you know, I've had parents say to me before, well, what you're telling me is I've really got to wear him out so that he's able to sit down and listen and stay with me and play with me and he just doesn't have all this pent-up energy. And if that's how you need to think about it, if that's what you need to, you know, call regulation in your own mind, that's fine. The movement piece, again, is what works for, no matter really where a kid is um, in this whole continuum of activity level and as it relates to attention span Movement is a surefire way to begin to address this kind of problem. So uh, for your busier kids, again, if you want to think about it as, man, i got to get some of this energy gone so that he is able to calm down and sit here with me, think about it in that way. And then if you have a child who happens to be on the other end of that with, well, he's pretty mm, checked out right now, you got to rev him up. you got to use movement to really, really get him going. So what are some things you can do? Any kind of movement activity is fine. Your kid may prefer jumping. So you may jump on the bed if you let him do that or jump on the couch. You may even have him jump on the floor, you know, hold his little hands and help him jump up and down. Running games, oh, things like ready, set, go, where you're chasing him, where you're letting him run. Um, I always think about the different homes that we've lived in and, our different floor plans and, you know, homes to families that I've worked in. It's always fun when we have kind of a big circle <laughs> in the living room so they can kind of run from, say, the living room to the kitchen and the dining room, and then you end up in the living room again. But, you know, and again, we call that, when, when our kids were little, we called it doing a lap. You know, I would say, let's do 10 laps, you know, where we would run, 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 and then come and sit down and do something together. Or even, you know, even something like before a meal when you think, man, he is just too wild to be able to sit down and eat right now you know I would just say let's let's do some laps let's let's run here so anything like that if you think gosh we don't have very much room we don't have that in our house or um, you know I can't really get him outside right now it's cold it's raining or you know you may live somewhere where it's too hot there are things you can do with less room you know we talked about bouncing on the couch or whatever you can even do it on your lap where you're sitting in a chair, even on the floor, where you place the child on you. That's the next thing that we're going to kind of talk about. So let's just save that. Let me get through this other little suggestion or two, and then we'll talk about those little lap games and how important those can be. But let's back up for a minute. Even a game like uh, for movement, like Ring Around the Rosies, where it's a little more structured. Remember that game, you know, Ring Around the Rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. 
think about how you play that game. You're holding hands, so you've got some deep pressure there if you're squeezing those little hands, and you're walking in a circle, so that movement is there. That vestibular sense really gets activated there with, you know, again, that going in a circle, almost like spinning, except you're a little bit more, um, gosh, not, not quite as, quite the circular movement there, a little bit more structured or focused here, but you are moving in that circle. For kids who are really active, man, we almost jog, you know, run around the roses is what I want to say for some of those kids. Boy, I'm worn out how many times we have to play that. And, again, the whole fall, we all fall down where we fall down at the end and then we jump back up and do it again. Super, super way to offer some movement to a child, and then it's not quite as, chaotic or you're not quite as crazy with, you know, all of the running and not really being able to contain them within a smaller space. So Ring Around the Rosies is a super, super, super game for that. And every day I'm treating kids, you know, that, boy, I don't go a day without treatment, without, or a day in treatment without playing Ring Around the Rosies because it's just kind of a staple for uh, treating toddlers. So that's a good one to do if you've not tried that. All right, so that's kind of the number one strategy there is get some movement going. Let's talk about the second piece of that, which I've already alluded to. Body-on-body -body contact can be really calming and regulating for children. And we know this. We know this all the way back to babies who were in the NICU, where their moms, you know, they really encourage that skin-on-skin -skin contact. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to do this with a two-year-old. And if you're a therapist, I'm certainly not telling you to go strip down in a family's home so that you can get skin-on-skin -skin contact. Not going there. But what I am saying is that experience of holding a child close to you on your lap can be really, really regulating for so many kids. You almost feel them kind of, you know, oh, let go, where you think, oh, you're finally calm and stay with me. Now, for some active children, at the beginning, they really resist this because it's like you are making them, you're forcing them to sit still with you. So that's not really how we want to do it. And if you need something kind of as an in-between to really help a kid get to the point where he can experience that little, you know, letdown or that relief feeling or that calmness that we're talking about, you may have to do something that's a little more active first and then kind of ease into that. So those bouncing on your lap games are really, really fun. Now, you can do it. Some kids are just perfectly content for you just to bounce, 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 bounce. Some kids, though, you need to have a little more purpose. So you might do something like ride a little horsey or row, row your boat or this is the way the gentleman rides or Humpty Dumpty or any little game where you're bouncing them on your legs. Oh, I love this little game where I play up, 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 down, where I lift, I'm sitting on the floor flat and I put a kid on my knees and then I raise my knees and say up, 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 and then, you know, really do that pause there, that waiting there, and then like it's a big surprise, say down and then lower your legs so that they almost fall to the floor. And again, I'm not meaning fall, that you're really going to hurt them or anything. I just mean that surprise of that little letdown there. That's a really fun game. And again, for a kid who really needs the activity, maybe you've done a lot of running or chasing or kind of get you, get you, get you games or tickling, but you want to calm them down even a little bit more, you can transition to a game like this. And again, you're not really doing the big bear hug in your lap just yet because they can't handle that. They may can refuse to do that with you. But if you sort of ease them into it with some of those little, and again, I call them lap games, so that they're on your legs, you're holding them, you're kind of getting them closer to calming down. And if you need some instructions or just some additional ideas about those little body games, check out my book, Teach Me to Play With You, because there's so many little things that you can do in there. And sometimes just taking one or two new little games or new little ideas like that can make all the difference in the world in helping a child really learn how to connect with you and 
again, calm down enough so that he can begin to really stay with you. And that's what an attention span is, him learning to pay attention to you, pay attention to what little game you're playing and stay with you there. All right, let's move on. Let's say we have a kid who's at a little bit higher level. Let's say that he will stay with you, and he does seem to want to play with some toys but only for a minute or two before he is bolting off again. What do you want to do for those kids? I use the one more rule. And again, this is not, you know, a strategy where you're going to go from keeping a kid with you, you know, one minute to you're not going to instantaneously increase it to five minutes all within one session. I mean, it certainly can happen. But that is a little bit unrealistic for toddlers. So what you do in this situation, if they'll stay with you, is you're just pushing for one more turn. So one more piece of the puzzle, one more page of the book, one more time of putting the ball in the hole and watching it fall down, one more you know, block on top of the tower before you have to knock it down. Just think about it in terms of one more rather than, you know, I have to go from getting him to staying with me again. We talked about, you know, 20 seconds to five minutes. That's not going to happen instantaneously. We've got to kind of work kids up to that. So you, what you do here and for one more is you just you get to the point where the kid wants to leave and you've got to not let him leave before you say it. You've got to do it. You've got to you know use your intuition here and really, really look at him and really, really watch him and you think, oh boy, he's about to do it. He's Oh gosh, he's about to leave. And you kind of just catch him before that and you say, oh, one more, one more. Let's do one more. And again, you're not asking for five more, guys. I mean, you may say one more and then he does it and you think, well, I think I can get one more beyond that. And you do that again, you know, you do another one more, one more. But that's how you build attention span. It's not by saying you are going to sit here with me and you're going to do this whole activity, whether you like it or not. You don't really want to go there because that's not as effective. And it's not as naturalistic. And, again, what are you doing when when you implement a procedure like that? You're kind of digging your heels in, and that forces the kid to want to fight back. And so he's going to prove that he can outlast you. And so you really don't want to get into those power struggles. So one more kind of keeps it realistic so that you are pushing for that just teeny, tiny little experience expansion of his, his attention span. So, and I've talked about the one more rule and called it that for a long time. I've done some shows about that, you know, the entire show. You can look back through the podcast. That was probably, gosh, 2013, 2014 when I did a show about the one more rule. You can look back through that list for some more ideas with that. But let me just say, I've gotten so much positive feedback from therapists who say, you know, I was trying to push it too far. I didn't really learn that getting one or two more little turns is fine and that, you know, the next time we get one or two more little turns and that we build attention gradually. Nobody really told me that or explained it in that way. And parents will certainly say that too. You know, they'll say, gosh, I just never thought that he would be able to sit through, you know, a whole little game with you here. I didn't think he'd be able to sit and do one activity for 10 minutes, but, you know, you didn't start out by just making him do it, just time, session after session after session. You know, it just got better and better and better. And, guys, sometimes parents don't even really notice it. I'll have to point it out. I'll have to say, gosh, remember a couple months ago when I couldn't get him to stay with me for more than just a few seconds? And look at him today. Look at how great he played with his toy with me. You know, I'll say something like, gosh, it's been nine minutes, you know, where he's been here 12 minutes with me. Look how fantastic that is. You know, and I'm really having to point out that progress and point out that success so you want to be sure that you're doing that too so that you're helping parents measure progress and so that they're really really seeing that but again guys you don't get that in one session now it's nice when it happens and sometimes we do have almost magic like that where you get something that a kid likes and you've gotten his little body and his little brain ready and just, you know, everything lines up perfectly and he does go from being pretty scattered to being able to sit and play with you for long amounts of time, you know, really, really quickly in the therapeutic process. 
But don't expect that to happen with every kid because, again, it's a little bit unrealistic. And so you're setting yourself up for um, expecting things to happen too quickly. And so the one more rule, again, keeps it really, really, really attainable so that you are able to get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more with every session and with every new activity you do. All right, I'm going to leave you with one more really practical strategy that I talk about all the time with parents when they're telling me that their children really don't have a good attention span. And this one seems super, super, super simple and super logical. Actually, there's two more I want to I want to do in this kind of um, this kind of focus. But as we're talking to parents about attention spans, one of the best things that they can do to help a child develop an attention span is just learn to stay with them through the day. So you're telling a mom, listen, I know that he likes to play by himself in his room. And I know that's good for you because then you can finally get some stuff done and you feel like this is when I can work. I'm going to let him do his own thing. But, guys, sometimes that's what starts out as a mom says that she's going to do that for 20 minutes. She looks up and it's been three hours since she's seen her child. And, again, kids who have social interaction issues are really, really prone to this where unless there's something really wrong that's happened, they pretty much – do their own things and aren't engaged with other people for the majority of the day. So you really have to talk to parents about that and get them to understand that that's a bad thing and that's really contributing to their social avoidance or their self-isolating tendencies. And we develop an attention span in children by getting them to want to be around other people. And again, you might be saying, well, he's by himself and he really is paying attention and I, that's great. You know, that's kind of what you're talking about here is an attention span. Guys, not for learning language. They learn language of other people. So we really, really, really want them around their parents, around their siblings, so that they, again, begin to have those opportunities, have more exposure to language, have more um chances to interact with people throughout the day. Kids have to be social in order to learn how to talk. And that does begin by being with other people. And a lot of times kids have to be with other people before they even know they like being with other people. So what I talk to parents about is take them with you when you move to different parts of your home. Don't let them just check out in their rooms or check out with their DVD player or you know be on the iPad for two hours without you doing anything except walking over to switch the app. Don't do that. Let's help parents learn how to connect and get that piece going, again, as the foundational starting point for beginning to understand and use language. So kids have to be in close proximity to other people. So talk about that with parents. And if you're a parent and you think, gosh, I've really messed this up, it's okay. There's still time. You can fix this. So just start by thinking, wherever I go, I'm going to make sure he's right there with me. If I'm doing clothes, if we're doing laundry, He's going to be right there with me. And, you know, sometimes parents will kind of roll their eyes and say, gosh, Laura, that's just a real pain. I know. I know it is. And it's kind of become your pattern not to have him or her with you. And, again, I'm just telling you what I know to be true about learning language. And that's really a pretty, once you make the decision that, gosh, I'm going to do it, I'm going to keep him with me. You know, if I'm going to the bathroom, he's going to go too. If I'm in the kitchen cooking, I'm going to have something for him to do so he stays in there with me. If I'm going to be in my bedroom, you know, doing whatever, I'm going to close the door and keep him in there with me. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to be with him. We're going to make this work. And it really is, I mean, for some families, this might be their assignment or their homework or their first strategy that we work on for a couple of weeks. And I tell parents, we've got to start at the beginning. I'm not going to give you all this really fancy schmancy stuff for you to do when this is something that we really need to get going first so that we're sure that we are, again, providing those opportunities for kids to learn how to socially interact and engage to set the stage for learning language. Last tip I want to talk about, for many children, building a better attention span really does begin with unplugging from technology. Now, it's a little bit controversial and, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics used to recommend for children birth to three, no 
screen time at all. So no apps, no DVDs, no TV, nothing. Now they've backed off that a little bit, and they're recommending just minimal exposure, and they're saying that screen time, that the only thing that's really, really educational or really beneficial for children are when it's interactive. So, excuse me, some little games or apps where they're pushing and responding and doing things. And, again, not just in a perseverative way. There needs to be a little bit of differentiation here, meaning that they have to do different things to get different results on their little game. It can't just be all, you know, push one button and the same thing happens over and over and over. That's not learning either. But for many, many, many children, overuse of technology has created more problems than any benefit that we see. Kids are overstimulated. And let me tell you what's happened with their, let's talk about the overstimulated part first. They're irritable. They appear to be annoyed. And sometimes you think it's because I'm taking the game away. That's not it. It's because they've spent too much time there just putting primarily visual information in. So they're kind of overwhelmed with that. And again, it may not look like that to you initially, but that's what's really happened. Think about you. How do you feel when you, let's say you you found a new series on Netflix and you're just going to binge. <laughs> and it feels good. And it and it's relaxing or, you know, you could be watching something kind of scary or whatever and it's exciting and you do it. But after, and it's fun, and you may even plan to do it, but after about four or five hours, you're just, you know, melted into the couch, and you just are, you might not think about it as overstimulated, but you're just kind of spent. You're just kind of done. You think, you know, oh, my goodness, where did that five hours go? I can't believe I've done this. You know, that may not be your experience. You may think, oh, I'm so glad I had that time. But a lot of us kind of feel yucky after that much time doing the same thing, you know, just watching, watching, watching. And so children may appear to do that too, but you've got to really uncover what those symptoms are and characteristics are and really make sure that you are attributing it to what's really, really going on. And most of the time it's they're overstimulated. And we do think, you know, there, there are some games or apps or movies or shows that you do think about as being educational. But, guys, too much of a good thing is still too much. <laughs> so you, you may really have to look at how much screen time you're allowing and pull that way back. For some families, they just go cold turkey. That's unrealistic for most of us. I've seen good results when some families have done that and totally unplugged. But for most of us, that, again, is going to not be something that we can realistically do. So think about minimizing it. Let me get to this really, really important point, and we're going to wrap up this show. The worst thing about technology that we can do, and even some shows, even especially DVDs from years and years ago um, that really for babies and young toddlers, if you watch the content of the show, it changes. The visual information changes like every four or five seconds. So let's say that they're trying to teach the word apple, and so they may have the written word apple, and then it switches to a picture of a red apple in five seconds and then in, or two seconds. And then three seconds later, you switch and you see a kid taking a bite of an apple. And then three seconds later, you know, you see a stack of apples in the grocery store. And then three seconds later, you see an apple on a tree. And again, what is that doing? While you think, oh, that's exciting. He's getting all these representations of the word apple. He's really learning that. Really what you've done is you've taught his little brain to scan and shift, meaning that he always has to see new, 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 new. And guys, that's not when we really learn. We learn by focusing. We learn by really attending, by really pausing so that we can process. So many of these things that we you know, think have been educational for our kids we, again, we've almost done the opposite because we're not teaching them to stop and focus. We're teaching them to seek out that next new, next new thing, that next new thing. And guys, that's not good for development. It's not good for learning. So, our recommendation for a lot of kids who have difficulty attending really, we do need to have conversations about how much technology they're using how much screen time they're having in a day and seeing what we can do to walk that back a little so that we can, or sometimes a lot, <laughs> 
so that we can help them um, develop the kind of attention they need in order to learn language. All right, I hope you learned some new things from this show. I hope you solidified some of your beliefs if you're a therapist and you're thinking, yes, I knew I believed that and I knew that was the right thing to do, but I didn't know how to explain it or I didn't know how to word it to a way that a parent would understand it or know why it's important. So I hope I've given you some ways to think about it and talk about it. If you're a parent, this might be the information, just these one or two or six new tips to help you really think about ways that you can realistically and practically address helping your child learn how to attend better. All right, next week we're going to continue with this topic with show number four, and we'll be talking about joint attention next week, so a little maturation of that attention. Hope you'll join me for that show. Have a great week.